here with Sarah Rich Dorman, who's the author of Understanding Zimbabwe, From Liberation to Authoritarianism. It's a fascinating historical, political tale of what's happening in Zimbabwe right now. So I have four questions for you, and I'd be so grateful for your answers here. Um, so Zani PF suffered electoral defeat in 2008, um, and that led to a power-sharing agreement with um, the NDC. But it didn't lead to a redistribution of power. The wording was weak, and it was hardly implemented. Given its popular mandate, why did the um, movement for democratic change not push back against Zani PF's authoritarianism? Thanks very much, Alice. Um, I think the, the dynamics of the political arrangements around 2008 really need to be understood in context. As you say, ZANU-PF um, did suffer an electoral defeat um, in that it lost control of parliament, uh, but there were a lot of, and that was, that was dramatic and, and unprecedented. That, you know, ZANU had, has won elections in Zimbabwe um, regularly since 1980, and um, those have been some of the those results have been questioned, but on the whole, they've won um, in many many of those elections. They won quite convincing majorities, and uh, the two thousand and eight defeat was was quite a dramatic shift in power in terms of the uh, the the party's position and understanding of itself and its relationship to to the state. But the MVC was still in a weak position in many ways, um, partly because the party had divided into two, two separate factions, um, partly because although they had um, won uh, a certain mandate from the people of Zimbabwe, ZANU retained control in many ways of key ministries. It was able to, to uh, manage the power sharing agreement that it was more or less forced into in ways to, to reinforce itself in power. And I think the irony in Zimbabwe is that that, um, that power sharing agreement was really the third such power sharing agreement that Zimbabwe had experienced. And in all of them, ZANU as, as the ruling party, as the party um, that had emerged victorious from the liberation struggle was really able to, to, to strengthen itself. It was able to use the apparatus of the state, the institutions of the state, but also to position itself rhetorically to legitimate its position. And they were, they, they were able to maintain that, that control of political thought in some ways, in ways that, that uh, made it very difficult for the MDC to position itself as sort of a, as a legitimate voice of people in Zimbabwe, a legitimate um, representatives, even though they had those parliamentary seats. And, and Zimbabwe's parliament in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s has always been a very robust debating chamber. Um, people, the politicians and, and um, parliamentarians have, have long used parliament as a way of, um, of articulating grievances, of pushing for policy changes. So parliament's always been quite robust but it became very, very polarized during mm -hmm. those years. So there, there was a, a, a limit to, to what they could really accomplish given that Mugabe was able to maintain control of the presidency and the executive power. And of course, the executive branch of the government had been massively strengthened um, from independence from the presidency was, was a purely ceremonial process and Mugabe was the prime minister, that executive role had been ramped up and ramped up. And so the, the, the fact that they were able to maintain control of the executive branch really 
meant that that legislate the legislature was constrained and curtailed in many ways at the same time although the mdc had control of some key ministries most importantly the ministry of finance and was able to do a huge amount to resolve the financial crisis that zimbabwe had been experiencing they weren't in as strong a position in terms of other ministries and they were constantly um, being caught out by decisions that were taken above them, things that they weren't really able to, to act against. But I think the MDC also felt a desperate pressure to try to kind of normalize things in Zimbabwe. People had suffered so much, people had experienced so much turmoil. Um, many of their activists had experienced such incredible brutality. Mm -hmm. I think the MDC also felt that they had to go along with this. They had to be part of it. They had to, to try to make things better. And so on some level, they were, they were constrained in what options were available to them on so many levels. But part of it was that they, they felt a certain, I'm not, I don't want to put words into their mm -hmm. mouths or, 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 you know, uh, try to guess what was going on in their minds. But I think some of them really, I think there was a, a need on their part to try to make things better. That didn't always mean advancing their immediate political goals. Mm. It didn't always mean making a big gesture. It meant so, so working things out. So was that quest for stability the reason why they didn't pull out of the power sharing agreement? Because it had they mm. pulled out, they would have, mm. you know, the power sharing agreement gave the mm -hmm. ZANU the legitimacy yeah. to continue, the legitimacy Absolutely. to maintain its control. Absolutely. Why didn't they pull they were, out? They were under a lot of external pressure, but I think they were also external under... External pressure from the region? Yes, and mm -hmm. and I think further more abroad. I think South Africa's role in this is, is crucial. So this is a point that you make mm -hmm. in the book that South Africa experienced loads and loads of migrants coming in, so they had a real interest in just maintaining stability and getting Zimbabwe mm -hmm. sorted. And I think we see this, this as an issue in... I mean, to generalize in African mm. politics from independence onwards, there's this essential, you know, stability seen as a good thing. We don't yeah. want instability. And so, so on multiple levels, not just because of migrant flows, although that's, that clearly was important for South Africa, but there is a, a certain, for good reason, a certain wariness of instability. Yeah, People absolutely. have seen what happens, the, the terrible consequences of instability in the region. And so there was, there is, I think, a, a strong concern that, that maybe actually just keeping peace is better in some ways for people, especially when people are exhausted and tired and mm. suffering. And I suppose that's something that we can speak to later on when we discuss, mm. but I guess donors who tend to be mm. risk averse tend to be very wary of conflict and not, not recognizing that sometimes progressive social change involves conflict, yeah. it involves mm -hmm. destabilization. So maybe we'll speak mm -hmm. to that later. Sure. Okay, um, so let's move to my next question. Mm. Um, given all these economic hardships and, and the cholera outbreak in 2008, why was civil society unable to push back? Why were activists, both in Zimbabwe and the diaspora more, more broadly, why did not they not demand more substantive change? Why were they placated? I think they did demand it, but I'm not sure they were listened to. Mm. I think many groups within civil society broadly in Zimbabwe were trying very hard to articulate the concerns and needs and challenges that people they represented, members of their organizations, um, were experiencing. Uh, I also think there were um, constraints upon them. There were limitations on them. Zimbabwe's civil society, you know, you can look back to, uh, I, I like to 
talk about, you know, there are NGOs in Zimbabwe that go back to the 1930s that were founded by black Africans. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, uh, you know, groups like the Association of Women's Clubs was founded by a black African woman, a chief's wife, but, you know, in the 30s. I mean, then there are organizations that started from the 50s and the 60s and really strong groups with, with roots in the liberation movement. I mean, these are strong organizations mm -hmm. with deep institutional mm -hmm. histories. And also, um, I talk about uh, in, in a fair bit of detail in the book, they have a real experience of working together. So you have women's networks, you have networks of church NGOs, you have networks of kind of more the more sort of progressive um, groups working together um, on policy changes. So they have a lot of that history. Um, but I think at 2008, again, they were at a, at a particularly weak point. They had, these groups had mobilized around things like the constitution, particularly mm -hmm. in the late 1990s and in the 2000s. They'd been very engaged, but then after 2000, when the MDC um, gets elected into parliament, it gets quite a lot of, a lot of uh, opposition MPs into parliament, um, a number of key leaders of NGOs who've been involved in the sector for decades and have a huge amount of knowledge and resources and trust, they go into parliament. Mm. Um, by 2008, a certain number of those key leaders have also decided or been forced to move abroad either because they've been harassed they've been attacked they their jobs have disappeared um for their family say for lots of reasons i mean i think mm -hmm. it's interesting that many of them struggled on for many years but by 2008 you start to see uh, just a generational turnover just a natural shift as well as people moving into the diaspora going for for other sorts of job opportunities so there's kind of a cr crunch of things there's a, a i think from 2008 onwards um a really interesting, um, new, exciting, very dynamic younger generation. Mm. Again, like some like some of the earlier generations, often coming out of um, youth politics in the at the university, but also other sorts of groups and 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 um, activisms, getting engaged. But um, but they're constrained in some to a certain extent by the divide in the MDC, um, by the nature of their relationship with with the MDC. Uh, many of them do have ties to the to the party they have um, commitments to it but at the same time they also and people say to me well you know sometimes these mps were kind of using us and so there were there were there were definite conflicts there even though there were on the whole i would say um there was a shared commitment to a certain type of ways of doing politics but the way the power sharing agreement was written crucially it cut civil society out of it the politicians yeah. made a deal and, and despite attempts by church leaders, by NGO leaders um, to have those voices heard, it really became a political deal on the part of political players. And why players. was that from the beginning? Why did that happen, that they were cut out? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I suspect it was easier for politicians to do a certain sort of political mm -hmm. deal. Um, there is a longstanding discourse in Zimbabwe that ZANU has pushed for a long time that tries to depict NGOs and churches and other groups like that as foreign funded, foreign supported. Yeah. Now, ironically, the, the classic example that I like to use of this was during the uh, the constitutional um, writing process in, uh, in from around 1999 to 2000. Um, the government, Mugabe in particular, was depicting a, the civil society grouping, the NCA, as being foreign funded, and meanwhile was accepting millions for its own constitutional writing process um, at the same time. So, you know, they're kind of having their cake and eating it too, but it meant that there is a certain um, 
perception of NGOs as being externally driven. I just don't think that holds up for Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwean activists have very clear ideas about how they think things should be done. They're, they're grounded, they're, they're embedded. Um, obviously, there are, there are um, donor agencies with particular ideas and policies being run, but in my experience, many Zimbabwean NGOs are very happy to stand up to, to donors and, and push their own agendas. But that discourse persists nonetheless. And I think it does make it a bit harder for them to position themselves as really legitimate interlocutors for the Zimbabwean people. It's too easy to kind of push them aside. And I think inevitably, um, politicians like to make political deals. And also because a, a large number of the key leadership of the MDC at that time themselves came from that sector, I think they felt like they could speak for it. Mm -hmm. They could kind of wear both hats. And I don't think they realized the extent to which some of those groups felt written out of it and, and sidelined by that process. And that's a really important point you make in the book about the MDC speaking for civil society. You, know, you highlight that exists often in development discourse, we tend to talk about this dyadic understanding of state and society mm -hmm. and what you try to highlight in the group is how there's this shared social economic milieu. So that's a really important point. But going back to your previous point, why is it important that civil society was cut out of the formal power sharing agreement? I mean, even if I'm not in the government's mm -hmm. formal power sharing agreement, I, I can still critique it, I can still mm -hmm. express dissent. And similarly, even if the NGOs are detached from the, the ordinary masses like ourselves, why aren't the ordinary masses similarly riled up? I mean, so many of them voted for MDC. Why did they then, in 2013, then vote for ZANU-PF? You know, why did the ordinary masses change? Sorry, too many questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that's, that's, that's a moment. Those are great questions. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, ZANU managed very successfully to reposition itself after mm. 2008 and that shock of having lost that, the general mm. election. Mm. They, they regroup, they focus, and they strategically position themselves to win the next election. And they focus very clearly on that and very coherently, and it's very, very successful in, in, in doing that. Um, why, so that, that's the second, I guess that was your second yeah. question. Um, why, so sorry, why, just to, sorry, just yeah. to, mm. how did they manage to get people around? Did they, I mean, was there a mark, I mean, Zimbabwe economically is still fairly much in the doldrums. Well, those few years after 2008 were, um, there was a, a, a lot of improvement for a lot of people. Um, there was, a, a, I think, an, quite an interesting kind of new, new positioning of the party. Mm. Um, in, the in the elections in the 2000s, I suggested there was a sort of a same old, same old, sort of a kind of mm. still doing politics the, sa the same old way. From 2008, there, there is a, an attempt to kind of reinvigorate and transform things. So you get a, interesting attempts, for example, um, obviously everybody, well, most people know about um, the land reform mm. um, uh, projects that, 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 that gave an awful lot of people land and gave a lot of those people a lot of hope and a lot of opportunities and people who, who um, were then able to take relatively small plots of land, but to grow tobacco, to grow food crops, to... Um, to become essentially you know, farmer entrepreneurs. And so that, that gave people new opportunities mm -hmm. and, and new options. But there are a lot of interesting um, kind of uh, uh, links into to, uh, indigeneity discourses and um, giving, giving resources back to communities that ties into, particularly in mining communities. I mean, there's a lot of innovative, interesting things that go on there where the government's able to use resources in interesting ways. Crucially, of course, also, um, the general, I'm not sure the general public benefited much from it, but there was this 
remarkable windfall of uh, diamonds being discovered in eastern Zimbabwe, which to a large extent, ZANU, the party and the military, seem to have siphoned off those resources very successfully and used them in campaigning. But in, in a number of ways, people did feel that that period from 2008, the economy had benefited, um, they had, things had improved from them. Now again, we see Zimbabwe again now in a much more precarious state, mm. but those years in between those two elections, mm. um, you know, I, I can't really second guess why people no, voted no, the sure, way yeah. they did, but I think there were a lot of things going on and the MDC was constantly being portrayed as having scandals and being uh, riven with feuds and divisions. And that and was enabled by ZANU's monopolization of the state media. Absolutely, yes. I mean, the other, it is important to realize Zimbabwe has always had and continues to have independent media. You know, from 1980 onwards, it had independent media. But for the most part, um, these were small outlets available primarily to, to the wealthy. The urban middle um, classes. The urban, well, urban elites, even mm -hmm. more than the middle classes, really. Um, and then from 2000 onwards, after the, the first time when Mugabe loses the constitutional referendum, he still manages to hold on to the election six months later, but they, move, they lose the constitutional referendum. And again, that was another one of these sort of wake up calls. They then bring in a whole series of new, um, extremely draconic legislation that constrains things like radio broadcasting. Mm. That can, and we also see attacks on the print media, the firebombing of independent newspapers. And so, freedom of assembly. Absolutely. So there's a whole series of things that happen there that, that obviously the activists are aware of what's going on. And, and sure, there are lots of people out there who are activists, yeah. but within the broader environment, it's a lot more complicated. And people see, saw an awful lot of, of uh, petty reporting and stories about you know, infidelities and yeah. corruption. And there was a perception, particularly in local politics, I think, but perhaps more broadly as well, that some of the, the opposition parliamentarians weren't behaving very differently from how the ZANU parliamentarians had done. So you get a sort of sense of these, these MPs who, who, are, uh, who only come around and ask for a vote, who are kind of distanced from us. Um, in some cases that might be fair, in others it isn't, but none of it's um, helped by the fact that often those same MPs are really constrained in terms of their mobility, mm -hmm. in terms of their ability to access the media, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, the MDC is very constrained in their ability to, to campaign and to articulate uh, a clear set of ideals and to really position themselves effectively mm -hmm. in that election. Mm -hmm. So just going back to the other point, why was it? Why did it matter that the NGOs, the Muslim Society activists, were cut out of the formal um, power-sharing agreement? Um, well, I think it matters uh, because it left them. It matters on, on, on multiple levels. I think it matters in part because it left them feeling um, very frustrated, mm -hmm. <laughs> very much. It meant that the the uh, the ideas that were circulating politically were, um, I think, felt very stale, felt very kind of same old. You know, there really weren't. Uh, alternative voices being articulated. Um, I talk in the book about um, sort of attempts to ar articulate uh, uh, sort of a vision of you know the Zimbabwe we want, which was sort of a discourse that circulated at the time. The church church leaders put out a thing about the Zimbabwe we want, but it, it didn't have anything terribly new and exciting in it. And I think NGOs and civil society and other groups um, felt unable to really push for something very very different because they, 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 were, they were kind of constantly being, being sidelined and left mm -hmm. out of those major debates. So the, the, the political sphere was essentially politicians talking to each other. And it was very difficult to, to really um, 
identify new new ideas. And so um, people talk about you know, intellectuals, writers, other people kind of kind of seeding this nationalist space. And, and uh, I'm quoting there a, a colleague of mine, Miles Tendy, who's done really excellent work on this, trying to understand these 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 intellectual projects. He's been criticized for doing that, but I think I think he's 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 um, kind of hit the nail on the head there. But what's interesting more recently, if you don't mind if I go on to yeah, the please, really recent please. events, is that I think in just the past year, mm. interestingly, we have seen um, those those uh, new new sets of ideas about about the Zimbabwe we want being articulated in a in a in a fresher, newer, um, really exciting way. And sort of the the best known of these, of course, is the This Flag mm. movement. Um, and it's hard to to convey just how exceptional it is in Zimbabwe, where that state flag came to be associated so closely with ZANU. Yeah. And, and wearing a flag or, or, or having one up really signified your adherence to the ruling party. Mm. Now, and, and I've been intrigued by, by the fact that even when there have been attempts, you know, a few very isolated attempts by people to reclaim that image, it's not been very effective. There was a, a march by um, Zimbabwean bishops and, and church activists years ago um, with uh, uh, using the flag as, as a, depicted as a cross. I thought it was this incredibly moving image, and it clearly it did not resonate. It didn't. Right. People were uneasy with it. And then we get someone like Pastor Evan Mamarire who comes in and drapes himself in the flag and goes on YouTube. And suddenly you see Zimbabweans wearing that flag and saying, no, this is our flag. This is our nation. This is, this is us. And that's that, that, that reclaiming of, of the flag, I think, is really striking. And the, and the fact that it struck such a spark with people. It really has struck oh, yeah. a chord. I mean, yeah. it's gone totally viral and there are all sorts Absolutely. of tweets and memes and yep. people expressing it. I mean, probably like the, you know... A uh, more middle class urban group, perhaps, mm -hmm. but certainly a diverse spectrum Absolutely. of people reclaiming what Zimbabwe yep. means to yep. them. And, and people really had tried. I mean, I can give you examples of people trying to do this in yeah. previous times, and it just fell flat so why, time why, and again. Why does it work now? Is it about the context at work? Is it about the key actors involved? I think um, Pastor Evan was, was uniquely positioned because he wasn't perceived as, as a sort of typical political mm -hmm. pastor type mm -hmm. figure. Um, I think there's a generational thing going yeah. on. I I couldn't explain quite why it worked. I'm fascinated that it has. It could also be the rise of digital media, more oh yeah, Zimbabweans having smartphones. Yeah. I mean that more people can craft yeah. it and participate. Yeah. Absolutely, and the, the imagery is really crucial. And I go back again to say the 2000 election, yeah. when people had very basic uh, cell phones. Yeah. They were using text messages to send really funny. You know, there were a lot of jokes circulating and a lot of things, and you know, jokes poking fun at ZANU PF on that would go around as text messages, and people would pass them on. I remember getting one in a, in a bank queue. And kind of my phone got handed up and down the queue of people as everyone read it and chuckled. And people were using things like the um, the personals ads in newspapers to put, again, funny, jokey, kind of subversive things in. But the smartphone and its ability to use images and video, mm. I think, really does make a difference in a way that, that kind of just text didn't quite work. But maybe, again, some of these things are building on those. I mean, this generate, you know, this, the activists now don't remember that stuff from 2000, but I do think there's sort of a, a building up of, of some of those uh, those practices and those ways of, of talking and joking. And I'm sure some of those same old jokes are still in circulation 
now. You know, you get these things about these the people sort of parody these funeral announcements, you know, um, come to the, the viewing of the corpse of Zen UPF and, you know, and kind of really mimicking these sorts of uh, announcements that people see all the time in their mm -hmm. daily life, but then, you know, making it, a, making it a political joke. And I think some of those do, do persist. But yeah, imagery just seems to have made such a, a difference. A really important point about the power of digital activism, how how these shared jokes, and particularly so with my research in Zambia, is very mm -hmm. much using jokes as a way of developing political solidarity mm -hmm. and seeing mm -hmm. that there are other people who are also critical. Because yes. I think one thing that's really important to distinguish is people are more likely to resist, to speak out, to criticise the regime, not when, not just when they feel it's wrong, but when they think that they'll be widely yes. supported by yep. others. Mm -hmm. And social media enables you to see that. If you see lots mm -hmm. of other people speaking out, then you have confidence Absolutely. that collectively you can drive change. Whereas if you don't see that because of uh, you mm -hmm. know, repression, lack of social media, for instance, you think, well, well, it'll be terribly dangerous. Oh, there's no hope for us, so I won't even try. So yes, I think mm -hmm. this flagging is, is really, really exciting. Right, so question number three, what, if anything, can outsiders do to support good governance? And that no one can see, but I put in square quotes <laughs> with my fingers. Thanks very much for the square quote. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I do think that um, Zimbabwe's politics, as you may have gathered from what I've already said, mm. is so sensitive to the appearance of people outside pulling strings, yes. of, of, of outside interference. Yeah. And... Uh, I think rightly so in the one sense, in that I think Zimbabwe's politicians, its activists, its intellectuals are more than able to identify what they're interested in and what they need to do and where they mm. want to go. Um, and, and, and there certainly isn't that much need for kind of being being you know tutored from outside. They don't need a human rights sensitization no. or awareness raising. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm inclined to say that if that is needed, that's something that they'll be aware of that it's needed, if yeah. you see what I mean. Yeah. I think that really what, what, if we're thinking about what people can do as donors, mm. then I think it's really about um, listening to people there, mm. listening to the activists there who've been mm. through so much, who can really point out what is needed, mm. not foisting off agendas or the latest trend sure. or the latest, oh, you know, everyone's got to do this, the sort of fad yeah. of whatever it is. I think it really is about listening to people there and, and, and trusting them trusting them to know what's needed and to be able to be flexible mm. as well. I think mm. that's something that I saw really crucially um, a few years ago when there were some donor agencies that were just willing to, um, to not map out everything months in advance, but mm. to have a bit of flexibility. So if something happened, if an issue came up, if there was a crisis, that groups were able to respond to that and to act on it. And, and I this think, is a key mm -hmm. recommendation of the World Development Report that's just come out on governance, that donors should be flexible mm -hmm. and adaptive, not mm -hmm. always focusing on their, their log frame outputs, mm -hmm. but sort of going yep. with the flow Absolutely. and working with the brain. Yep. Okay, but suppose what about workers playing a sort of convening, facilitating role? Because in your, the book you talk about factionalization, mm -hmm. whether it's between MDC or mm -hmm. between civil society, lacking the sort of institutionalized networks. Can donors play a sort of convening, facilitative role, bringing people together? Um, yes, but I think it has to be more than, as you say, log frames. I mm. saw an awful lot in the past of kind of donors saying, right, well, everyone's got to have networks and everybody's got to do this and that. And, and it felt as though it was being done for the sake of being done mm. sometimes. Not always. And maybe sometimes you kind of have to try until it works. But I think a lot of it's about building up trust. And, and yes. inevitably in these conditions where... Um, people feel very um, 
very very fragile. They feel that everything's kind of insecure. Yeah. But it is dif difficult and the to build uncertainty that sort of trust. You speak of in the book. Mm. But can do we even need donors to build up trust? Like, is there can donors do anything? Like, why? <laughs> you know, if if Zimbabwean activists know mm -hmm. what's needed mm -hmm. and they've got great ideas, mm -hmm. why why do they need donors at all? Uh, I think because they're they're they've been struggling financially, right? Um, and because Zimbabwe's economy is still, um, but, but I mean mm -hmm. for the sorry, good governance right. projects, oh, okay, sorry, for the mm -hmm. sort of civil society strengthening initiatives, mm -hmm. what what can donors add to that? I think there are. I'm sure there are examples of best best practice of right. kind of learning from other countries. I, again, in uh, in the '90s, when some of these groups were just getting going, some of these 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 networks and and so forth. Um, Zimbabwean NGOs talked to NGOs in Zambia that mm. had just come out of their struggle for multi-party governance. And of course, those two um, dynamics were different, but they were able to, to learn from those examples. I think that's a really, really important point. The, impo the importance of peer learning from mm -hmm. similar African mm -hmm. countries mm -hmm. and maybe donors can play a role in convening Zimbabwean activists and civil mm -hmm. society and parliamentarians and governments together and also mm -hmm. enabling sort of shared learning from other African countries. Mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. really key, not introducing their own ideas yep. and also being iterative and adaptive, as you mm -hmm. say. Okay, fourth and final question. What does Zimbabwe's experience of power sharing tell us about supporting good governance in inverted commas um, in Africa more broadly? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It comes back to these themes that we talked about earlier around stability versus instability. Yeah. As I said to my students in a lecture a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, democracy or democratization, it's the classic definition of it's the institutionalization of uncertainty. You know, by definition, democratic governance is unpredictable. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know where it's going oh, to lead to. Trump, and there's an awful yes, exactly, absolutely. And there's a lot at stake. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, but I would also go back to Zimbabwe's, uh, uh, as I said, three experiences of types of power sharing. None of them, mm. perhaps, an ideally crafted power sharing, but they are essentially attempts to create something like unity governments or governments of, of, um, of national unity, whatever term you want to use. And, and in all of them, the ruling party has been successful in regrouping power and, uh, and, and, in, and in, in carving out space for itself and restricting that space to other actors. And that's clearly not what power sharing is supposed to do. But I think there's also this tension in, in not just in Zimbabwe, but for a lot of people, there is a tension between, as, as we already said, stability and uncertainty. And so there are, there are a lot of people who, who, there are reasons why. I don't think power sharing is just something that's been pushed by donors, although there has been a strong trend towards that as a solution to, particularly to conflicts in Africa, which yeah. I think academic research has really um, uh, raised a lot of questions about. Yeah. Um, but there is also, there are also many people internally who, who would support those sorts of approaches to doing things. You know, in other words, a, an argument saying that if we simply um, turn parliament into this sort of polarized yeah. um, uh, environment, nothing's ever going to happen. Punch and Judy politics. Yeah, and, and so somehow I think there's got to be a, a way of, of, of uh, uh, balancing those things out, that there is a need to have, have a, Parliament where people can actually really articulate um, uh, concerns and, uh, and, and, and raise issues, but at the same time also enable MPs, perhaps it's not so much so different, but you know, MPs uh, to, to represent constituents and to articulate ideas. And, and, and those things shouldn't be um, uh, seen as, as, as incompatible 
you know, sort of competitive elections should not be incompatible with representation, but often it, it becomes that. People feel compelled to toe the party line, to, uh, to advance things. But we have great examples of parliamentary committees, of um, particularly the Women's Coalition, which was able to work across party lines with female MPs across all the parties at various points in various elections. I mean, there are examples of these things working well, of people not so much uh, uh, using power sharing or, or cross-party agreement to advance their own interests, but using it to actually improve policy and, and to make, make uh, um, better, better policy outcomes for people on the ground. But it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really finely balanced thing. And in, at the risk of falling into a, a politics lecture, it comes back to this idea about, about winner-takes-all politics. Yes. That you know, it's got to be possible um, for power to be handed over from one government to another and for people to see that it's not the end of the world to be in opposition. You see what I mean? Yeah, Is I, that, think, that, I, mean, I mean, that makes me think mm -hmm. of two things. So one, there's Paul Collier's idea that when there's an authoritarian who loses power, they should be assured that they'll be able mm. to keep all their financial gains. And in that way, your authoritarian kleptocrat mm. is more likely to seize power. Mm. You know, and I think there's probably similar assurances were given to Jammy. Mm -hmm. You know, he was mm. able to go to etc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was it Morocco mm -hmm. with you know masses and masses of wealth from the Gambia? Yep. And you know, it was partly because of those financial assurances, perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, give them give them a ton of cash, um, uh, and then you might mm -hmm. see a redistribution of power. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, coming back to our question about uncertainty. Is, do you think that this flag movement has introduced any uncertainty or not? Because that would seem like an interesting rupture, mm -hmm. but maybe not something introducing uncertainty, but just regalvanizing civil society, activism, etc. It seemed, I think it's, it's, it certainly captured a certain um, mood of disenchantment with politicians, with right. party politics, mm -hmm. with politics as usual. Right. And I think it was quite successful in that way. Um, but but I think the reason it didn't introduce uncertainty is because they never really had any power. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, and that's really what it comes yeah, down to. It's course. this idea of, of zero sum politics, of power being centered on the mm -hmm. state as being indivisible, and and that those it's those tensions. It's really uh, this is why I think as I would think this as a political scientist, mm -hmm. but I think all of these issues are are deeply political. They're mm -hmm. about the the institutions that exist and the way in which people conceptualize power. And, and as you say, uncertainty, there's different kinds of uncertainty, but, but uh, you know, the other thing that people say about um, uh, guaranteeing that whoever leaves power goes away with his resources is that, well, you know, we've got one lot that's been in and looted. If we let the next lot in, they'll just take for yes. themselves as well and we'll be even poorer. Let's yeah. keep these guys in. At least they've already made themselves rich. <laughs> you know, there's an awful lot of cynicism yeah. out there. I also think that many Zimbabwean voters are extremely well-informed mm. and extremely knowledgeable. And mm. maybe you could mm. end with one of my favorite anecdotes, or well, it's up to you what, where we end. But, but in, uh, in 2000, I was election observing, and I was talking to uh, uh, someone who was work, uh, a school teacher who was working on, on running a polling station. And um, he was talking to me outside on his break. And he said, well, you know, I was really worried about my mother. She lives off in the rural areas. I was really worried. You know, she, she just gets the, the government press. I, so I, I drove out. I took this big stack of the independent, the opposition newspapers out to her. And because I want to make sure that she was going to vote right. And of course, you know, he's giving me the sign, the, the MDC, the opposition mm -hmm. sign with his, with his open hand, not the closed fist of Zeni, yeah. but the open hand of the MDC. And he said, my, oh, and he just, then he looked embarrassed. He said, you know, my mother just looked at me. And she said, my son... I have lived in this country longer than you. 
I know what this government has done to us. I don't need your newspapers. I don't need you to come here from the city and tell me how to vote. Just you make sure that those boys get me to the polling station in that ox cart. You know, she, wasn't, she wasn't, couldn't get there on her own, but she said, make sure you get those young boys to get me to the polling station, push me there if you have to, and I will vote the right way. And mm -hmm. she gave him that opposition hand sign. So, you know, I think we shouldn't necessarily discredit people's experiences and people's knowledge mm. and people's understanding. But at the same time, there's a lot of cynicism and a lot yeah. of pessimism yeah. and people have been through an awful lot. And, uh, and people, I think, do despair sometimes of getting the sort of representation and, and the outcomes that they really want. But, but that we shouldn't necessarily assume that people are, are, are blinded or easily befuddled no, because absolutely. i think this is a really important point about rural political change in many um, low-income countries and i saw this um, in cambodia where i was for two months last year particularly rural people becoming so much more informed one with uh, icts independent radio stations broadcasting from the region really knowing what's going on discussing that collectively mm -hmm. and becoming very privately critical so maybe um, like um, Asimoglu and Robinson arguing why nations fail, you know, maybe this media will be the solution for good governance. Um, but anyway, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for sharing. And I would very much encourage people to read the brilliant book, Understanding Zimbabwe from Liberation to Authoritarianism. Thanks so much. Really lovely to be here.